0: From 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. our great merciful God who dwells in the heavens we come before you humbly recognizing that we are sinners saved by grace through Christ alone Lord we thank you for the many blessings that you give us today Lord we many times and we take for granted the opportunity to gather here in a building like this in a comfort where it's warm and comfortable seats, nice lighting. And yet we for, oftentimes forget about our brothers and sisters throughout the world that's being persecuted by those who hate the sun. Lord, let us remember in our hearts to pray for them diligently. Lord, I ask that you now, as Jim prepares to bring the message to us this morning that you stir up in our hearts a love and affection and a reverence for your word, Lord, that we naturally do not have. And Lord, I ask for my own heart. Lord, you have sent your son to die on the cross so that our sins could be paid for. And I am ransomed. Your children are ransomed. Lord, let us not forget the glorious price that it was for the Son to pay the awesome price for us. So, Lord, finally, as I close this prayer, I ask that you humble us and make us know that you are a God of mercy. But you're also a God of wrath and justice. Let us be awestruck by you and your name. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Daniel. Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's word, please open it to first Peter, first Peter chapter five, as you just heard Daniel read. Do you ever look in the mirror and wish that you had the opportunity to say something to a younger version of yourself? Do you ever think if only I would have known at an earlier age, something I know now, think about that for just a minute. What would you tell a four year old version of yourself? What golden piece of advice would you look at that little four year old and say, never do this or start doing this now? Maybe you would say, give your life to Christ, eat all of your food, buy Apple stock. If a four year old could do that, maybe you look at a 12 year old version of yourself. What would you say? Don't worry, you'll get past the acne. Hang in there. Life's going to get better. The trauma that you're enduring is going to be okay. Just clean your room. How about to a 16-year-old version of yourself? Study more for your driver's test. Be more patient with your family. Take more responsibility for different things in your life. What about an 18-year-old version of yourself? What kind of trouble did you get into that you wish you could have just avoided had you only known This or knowing that or who do you associate with and who do you surround yourself with? And what do you fill your time with? What would you tell that 21-year-old version of yourself? What would you stop doing? What would you start doing? Buy the life insurance policy when you're young before you've done anything dumb. Start saving before there's too late and the the compound interest doesn't add up the same amount that it does early on in life. About a 25-year-old version of yourself. Maybe as a parent, would you look back and tell a younger version of yourself as a parent to hold those kids a little tighter, to love on them and to hug on them and to not miss a chance to look them in the eye? What would you tell yourself? You know, sometimes when you think of those thoughts, you have regrets because all you can be reminded of is all the trouble and all the hardship. But also you can look back at that younger version of yourself and say, hang in there, life's going to be exciting. God's going to do amazing things. You're going to get saved. He's going to radically transform your life and bring hope and joy where there wasn't any in the past. What we get to see this morning is a lesson written from an older, seasoned man who looks back at life and in some ways speaks to a younger version of himself and says something that he himself needed to hear as in his youth, but that we all need to hear today. What we get to hear is from a man who has suffered the consequences of disobedience, and a man who has suffered the consequences of obeying. The one writing this text in front of us, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, is what we're going to look at today. The one who's writing it is Peter. Now, we first meet Peter in Matthew 4, where Christ sees him and his brother fishing. Christ walks up and says, follow me. And Peter says, sounds good, and drops the fishing nets and walks away from it. Now, just put that in your own like, your own vocation. And someone walks up and says, Troy Lawson, follow me. Daniel, follow me. And you drop what you're doing and walk away from the job and follow this person. I mean, think of the absurdity of doing that in a world that's hand to mouth, where you work the job, you get paid, and you buy the food, and you eat the food, and you go to sleep, and you get up the next day, and you do the same thing over and over again. I mean, what, what Peter did is not normal. Drone men don't leave their vocation. They don't leave something for nothing. They don't leave something just for somebody passing through town and saying, follow me. Unless you have an inkling that this is something supernatural. Well, then as the story goes on, you have Peter's life starting to unfold. And you realize, well, he's married. And we meet his mother-in-law who's sick. And Jesus heals her he continues serving with Jesus. He's one of his disciples. He's accompanying him all over the place. You may remember that scene where Jesus comes approaching disciples, walking on the water in the midst of a storm. They see Jesus walking, and it's Peter who says, I don't believe it. And Jesus says, well, come walking towards me. And Peter has to get out of the boat and walk towards Jesus. And what happens? He begins to sink, Right? and Jesus comes over and grabs his hand and pulls him back out of the water. I mean, incredible things that Peter got to experience, but because of his youth, because of his impulsiveness, because of his brashness, he's always testing Jesus. It's as if to say, I believe, but you better prove yourself. I mean, even in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with this confession of faith and says that you are the Christ, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, this is not something that man told you. God told you this. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. And the next verse, Jesus foretells his coming death. And Peter says, may it never be. Now, here's Peter trying to obstruct the crucifixion. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, there's some tension going on here. There's some youth and some vigor that Peter has where he is constantly pushing Jesus. John chapter 13 Jesus is going to demonstrate humility, and whose feet did he wash? He washes Peter's. And Peter says, at first, no, you're not going to wash my feet, because you're God and I'm not. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you're not going to heaven. He's saying, if you don't take part in me, if you don't commune with me, you're not saved. And Peter says, well, then give me a bath, Lord. I want the whole thing. Scrub all of me. I mean, just over and over again, you see Peter impulsively. Peter rashly, in some ways, unsensibly acting. Even at the transfiguration. I mean, you have a few disciples, only three that Jesus chose to bring with him, and God is honoring his son, and Moses is there, and Elijah is there, and Peter pipes up and says, hey, it's really good for us to be here. I'll tell you what, Jesus, I'll build three temples, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while Peter is talking, God the Father speaks and basically says, stop talking. Do you have that scene in your home where somebody is a runaway train and it's just this machine gun filibuster of words, just nonstop. And there's a point where apparently you say, silence. That's what God the Father does (laughs) because Jesus is there and God the Father wants to honor his son and Peter won't shut up. And so, God says, this is my son, listen to him, and honors his son. Stories go on, you can look through the rest of the Gospels, it's Peter who falls asleep while Jesus is praying in the garden the night before he's, uh, or just before he's arrested. It's Peter who then jumps to Jesus' defense when Judas and the high priest and others show up to take Jesus away, it's it's Peter who jumps up with a sword and cuts the ear off the high priest's slave. The denials then take place. In fact, let me show you one thing. Look at Luke chapter 22. you got to see this. This is fascinating. It shows you the tension with Peter and Jesus. Look at Luke 22. Just keep your finger in first Peter, but you got to see this. Luke 22. Remember it was to... Peter that Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows tonight. And Peter says, no, Lord, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. But look at what happens. Look at Luke chapter 22. You have the scene where uh, he's arrested. Jesus is arrested. He's put before Pilate. Pilate goes back and forth on who's going to be or this, I'm sorry, before the arrest, or before the trial before Pilate. He's arrested in Luke 22, verse 54. He was led away. But look at how verse 54 ends. It says, but Peter was following at a distance. All right, so Jesus is arrested and led away. Peter's walking behind a distance away. He can see him. He's there. There's there's close proximity. And then the denials take place. Verse 55 of Luke 22. Peter's sitting among them. A servant girl challenges him. A little bit later on, verse 59, a man challenges him. And then the third denial... The cock crows, and look at verse 61. This is fascinating to me. Immediately the rooster crowed, verse 61. The Lord turned and what? Looked at Peter. This is one of those high points of drama where there's eye contact. This is one of those points where Jesus turns, the cock crows, the third denial takes place, and Jesus just turns and looks across the the way and makes eye contact with Peter. He you catch the drama of that moment? Here's Peter, who just a few hours before swore he would never deny Christ, does it three times as Christ told him he would do, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Verse 61 says, And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That's the turning point in Peter's life. Because up until that point, he had confessed his bold faith for Christ. He had been the brazen one. He had been, in some ways, the arrogant one. The the one that was impulsive and constantly pushing the edges. But then he's humbled. He's broken. He denies Christ three times. And in that third time, in that moment, Jesus turns around and looks at him. And that eye contact is humiliating. To Peter it breaks him because he knows that the one who's about to die to pay the penalty for his sin is the one he just turned his back on and he's right there it's fascinating then you don't have to look at it but mark down John chapter 21 it's Peter then that Jesus makes breakfast for because Peter goes back to fishing and after Jesus's resurrection he comes to the shore and And he makes breakfast and the disciples come in and Peter comes in and has breakfast with the Lord. And Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Care for my church. Oh, if you look through the book of Acts, you then see Peter who's boldly preaching the gospel, calling people to repent. You see Peter who's arrested and doesn't fear even those who arrest him and persecute him and continues to preach the gospel. You even have that incredible scene in Acts chapter 12 where Peter is in in prison, and he arrives at what will be his execution day. He's supposed to go before Herod, which is his execution day. And the night before, an angel appears and opens the jail cell, unlocks the door, and takes Peter out. Peter then goes to the house where there's a whole group of people praying for his release. And remember, he knocks on the door to come in, and the girl who answers the door is so excited to see him that she runs back and tells people, Hey, Peter's out of jail, and leaves him at the door doesn't open the door. She just simply goes and says, our prayers are answered. Oh, by the way, I should go let him in. He's outside. This is the life of Peter, over and over again. Challenges and challenges. This incredible life. And then we get to the book of 1 Peter. At this point, he is now looking back over his life and writing two letters to the churches to help them understand how to live godly in this present age. How to deal with the challenges, how to deal with the Volatility of life and how to present to them a heart that longs for Christ, that endures all that is coming at it. And so what we find in this passage here is Peter writing the lessons that have been battle tested, writing the lessons that have been learned from a voice of experience, writing the lessons from someone who is long down the path of walking with God, who has seen the work of Christ, who knows the power of the Holy Spirit and can present to us the lessons that we have to learn now in our youth. And so let's look at these. And there's a few of them. They come at us in rapid succession from verses 6 down through verse 11. The first one is this. He says, embrace God's unfolding plan. That's the main lesson. Embrace God's unfolding plan from verse 6. He says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Sometimes when we see that word humble, we put that in contrast to pride and we think of it in terms of pride is arrogance, pride is sin, pride is that boastfulness against God, and we need to be humble in contrast to sin. But there's a different use of the word here. That is an appropriate use, and in many cases that is what God is saying about not being arrogant. Scripture does warn us to flee from sin. James 4, 6 says God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a place for that contrast between pride and humility. But the I believe the application of the word that Peter uses here is not one of contrast to pride exclusively, but of one of following God's plan. There's a humility that goes along with submitting your life to the plan of God, opening yourself up and yielding to the unfolding plan of God. Keep your finger in 1 Peter, but let me show you what I mean. Look over at Philippians chapter 2 for just a minute. There's no greater place in the Bible that this word, humility, is demonstrated than in Philippians chapter 2. What what Peter is saying here is when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, it means to yield to the prevailing plan. It means that God has a pathway that he's going to unfold and a desire that he wants you to do. And he's going to open that up and reveal that in time. And as he does that, our role is not to resist it, not to fight it, not to thwart it, not to regret it or begrudge it but to simply yield to it. Paul says this in Philippians 2. He says, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, there's our word, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That means look around the room, scroll through your index of friends, and consider yourself the lowest person. Not the one who everyone else is privileged to be around, but the one who's privileged to be around everyone else. He says, with humility in mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here's where this attitude, though, is exemplified. This is the attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. Emptied himself. We'll come back to that word. Taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see what he's doing? He's saying in 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourself. Yield to the will of God. Do the will of God. Take his word and implement it in your life. Follow his unfolding plan, not your own selfish desires, but do what God wants you to do in the same way Christ did what the Father wanted him to do. You can mark down John six thirty eight where Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came not to do my plan, but I'll yield my plan to his plan. I'll yield my desires to his desires. I'll yield what I want to do, to what he wants me to do. And that will be my goal. As Christ says in Matthew 20, 28. He did not come to be served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The wording where it says humble yourself. What it indicates is a willingness allowing to be hum- humbled. I'm allowing myself. I'm not resisting God's efforts. I'm not resisting his plan. I'm yielding to it. It's the same idea back in 1 Peter 5. Where he says Humble yourself before the elders. 1 Peter 5, 5. It's the same lesson. He says, Yield to the spiritual authority and in a much greater way, yield to God as the authority. And the result, he says, in 1 Peter 5, 6, is when you embrace God's unfolding plan, He will exalt you at the proper time. He will build you up. He will lift you up. You know what? That's exactly what God did with Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Not only does it say that he, that Christ followed God's plan in emptying himself and doing the will of the Father. But then verse 9 of Philippians 2 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him. That's the word. God exalts us in the proper time. He exalted Christ. It says, And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father what that means is while on this earth you will be snubbed you will be ignored all of your sacrificial efforts all of your obedient efforts all of your tenacity to walk holy in this world will be ignored by the world will be dishonored by the world but Christ will exalt you Christ will lift you up Christ will vindicate you Christ will in the same power that he enthroned that he is enthroned he will empower us and vindicate us and lift us up that our exaltation in first Peter 5 6 is tied to his exaltation in Philippians chapter 2 you say how do we get humble this is a question I got to constantly work on my own life how do I get humble I think the answer is really simple it's not a complicated answer the way we get humble is simply this it's to stare at Jesus it's to focus on Christ to look deeply at Christ, to long to know him, to embrace his word and to dig into it and read it over and over till we see him more clearly. Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me And the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says, I stare at Christ. I focused on Christ. I long to know Christ till Christ is in me when I stare at him and I have the vertical set, then the horizontal takes care of itself. It puts all human relationships into proper focus. I can forgive because I'm forgiven. I can love because I'm loved. I can help because I'm helped by him. I can encourage others because I'm being encouraged by Christ. I can sacrifice. I can endure. I can comfort. I can correct. I can extend mercy all because it's what Christ does to me. As that song says, you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, and what happens? The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's exactly what Peter is telling us. It's in his light that we see our pride. It's in his light that we see our selfishness. It's in his light that we see our impatience, our independence, our arrogance. All of that is exposed when we simply stare at Jesus. Staring at Him puts us in proper perspective. No one goes to the Grand Canyon or stands before the Rocky Mountains or looks at some massively gorgeous landscape and standing there thinks, Wow, I'm really important, aren't I? No one goes to those settings and thinks more of themselves. You go to those settings and think less of yourself because you know, I didn't make that. I can't do that. We stand in those settings and we realize that there's a holy, glorious God And the more we stare at him, the more we realize how grateful we must be that he loves us and gave himself for us. So when we study him that we see who we really are. Those two are tied together. And so Peter starts this section saying, embrace God's unfolding plan. Humble yourself. But then secondly, verse 7, he says, empty your heart of worry. Empty your heart of worry. This is one of the most reassuring, comforting verses in all of Scripture. Look at verse 7. If you underline your Bible, this is one to underline in a big way. It says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The words here are so vivid. He says, cast. Now, maybe there's a fisherman in the room. What happens when you do a half-hearted cast? And you stand there on the dock, and you throw your line out there, and it goes, boop, and it just drops. That's not an effective cast. That's a half-hearted deal. What the wording is here is not simply something that's to place or to set down in a passive or maybe lazy way. The word cast is one for completely heave. It's to throw with all of your might to put everything that you have in this box called anxiety or worry and to heave it onto Christ. It's to take the entire burden off of me and to put the entire thing onto him—not ninety-nine percent, but one hundred percent—the thought in Peter's mind here generates from Psalm fifty-five, verse twenty-two, which says, "Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken." This is entrusting the entirety of the issue into the ones in the hands of the one who can handle it. But catch this. The word anxiety there in verse 7 is the word for something that divides us. It's the word for something that cuts us up. It's the word for something that separates us. It's not just the worries of your mind of trying to pay the bills and how to deal with the kids and how to deal with the stress of sickness and, and the weaknesses of life and the relationships you got to maintain and all the other things. It's the things that literally divide our mind. To where on one hand we can sing songs of praise to God like we just sang. And then a second later have our thoughts rocketed over to this other category of all the things we can't control and don't have answers for. Stuff that separates us, even in relationships. They consume us, they confuse us, they concern us. What Peter is saying is we have to take all of that and in one mighty heave throw all of that on the person of Christ. And look what he says. You do this because he cares for you. He cares for you. We have his affection right now in our life, we have his attention. What Peter's saying is you don't have to get that at a future point in time. God doesn't stand there saying, until you heave that on me, I don't care about you. It's not an if then that triggers this from happening he's saying you heave your your anxiety on him you cast your burdens on him you put all that on him because ongoing at every minute of every day throughout all of time no matter what you're doing or not doing you have his affection you have his attention what he's saying is not a condition we don't trigger his affection at the point of our weakness. We have it all the time. He's saying there's no reason not to do this. There's no reason not to pour out our hearts before him. There's no reason not to surrender all of our burdens to him. There's no reason not to crowd to him and beg him for help. It's not that he only cares for us when we cast our anxiety on him. It's that he cares for us all the time. Matthew six thirty two says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow (laughs) will care for itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. Is that not the truth? Someone told us a long time ago that there's no Costco for grace. I can't go get a whole pallet of grace and jack it up my pallet jack and bring it home and put it in my big pantry and just have bucket loads of grace. You know, and some days just pour out a few more buckets. I can't do that. All we get is enough grace for one day. And sometimes I feel like i got too much day left at the end of my grace. You know, and like, what do I do with the extra day? I still have more day to go. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to give you enough grace for one day. And when you wake up in the morning, there's going to be a completely sufficient supply of God's love upon you for the entirety of that day. That's so foreign to this world. That's so foreign to, to even sometimes in the church where we have so little grace for so many relationships. And we think, I only want to put in my life the the circumstances that I feel like I can control. And Jesus is saying, you're but dust. You're not able to handle all of this. You're going to need to rely on supernatural grace, supernatural love, and supernatural kindness. That's the shocking message of the gospel. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He doesn't say, come to me all the strong and and those who are tenacious and full of endurance. He says, I want those of you who just feel like you can't even move. I want those of you who are weary and heavy laden, who have a burden of guilt, who have a burden of grief, who have a burden of anxiety. I want all of you to come to me. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, I'll give you rest. I'll give your soul rest. This goes beyond mere knowledge of us, beyond affirming words. This goes beyond simply someone sharing your emotions, a listening ear. This is supernatural care. This is supernatural, Holy Spirit driven. Watch care over your soul from one, as Hebrews 4, 15 says, has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Hebrews four sixteen says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is an incredible reality, but what Peter's telling us is the humility in verse 6 is tied to the anxiety in verse 7. That if you're going to be humble, it's going to happen as you release the anxiety. What you never see in Scripture is someone who is humble and anxious at the same time. What you see in Scripture is someone who is humble and releasing the anxiety, releasing the worry, and in its place, God puts confidence. Pride and anxiety are tied together. Humility and peace are tied together. The third one that Peter gives us is remain vigilant against sin. And this comes in verse 8. Remain vigilant against sin. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is a battle-tested statement from Peter. He says, your adversary. That sets up a courtroom drama where you have the the accuser, you have the prosecution, who has built a case against you and is bringing something to say to you. The devil. What he's identified by here in this passage is, is both who he is, the devil, and what he does, the adversary. Who he is is Satan, but what he does is he's the slanderer. That's the image that's being drawn up here as the adversary. He's someone who assassinates your character, discoloring you, undermining you, tearing you down. It's the same thing he did to Job where he goes to God and says, Have you seen Job? And he assaults Job's character. Slandering him. That's what Satan does. He trolls about, as Scripture says, like a roaring lion, pacing back and forth. I don't know if you have a chance to watch the Discovery Channel or watch the Animal Channel. One of my favorite things to watch are lions stalking. I could watch that all day long. It's the most majestic thing of a lion that patiently will crawl an inch forward at a time. And there's this beautiful gazelle standing there, frolicking around, just eating whatever it's going to eat, acting like it's just this perfect utopia. And 10, 20 feet away is this lion that has no conscience. The only thing it's going to do is kill. It doesn't think anything about what it's going to do tomorrow. It has no regrets of what it did yesterday. It has no other objective than to kill what's right in front of it. Its goal is to drain the blood out of that object. That word, drain the blood, is the word for devour. That's what the Bible says. That's verse 8. The lion that prowls around seeking someone to devour. The word devour is the word for drain the blood out of something. That's exactly what Satan is looking to do to a Christian. Is to drain the faith out of you. That's what Satan's objective is in the life of a Christian. He can't assault our salvation. He's not going to change our salvation status. But he can weaken our faith. He can cause us to doubt. He can put in front of us things that we would look at and begin to doubt God's grace and his compassion and his love. And so what Peter is telling us is be of sober spirit, be alert, pay attention, know what's going on around you, have a sense of bearing, be diligent and discerning, be aware, be shrewd. He says, watch out, look around. In fact, if you look back in First Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He says don't give Satan an opportunity. Know your vulnerabilities. Know your weaknesses. Know the places where Satan will attack. Ask yourself the question, where will temptation enter the picture? Where will sin enter this picture in my life? Where are the places where my heart is given over to temptation and opportunity is the only thing I'm missing. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 says, "Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit." Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep that sober spirit. Keep alert. He says, not only do you need to be alert for your vulnerabilities, but also for the vulnerable. I think another part of this being alert is not only self-inspection and looking at your own heart, but paying attention to the believers around you and watching out for those who are susceptible to Satan's attack as well. That's First Peter five fourteen or First Thessalonians five fourteen says, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. He says, be alert, pay attention. First of the lessons here, number one was embrace God's unfolding plan. Number two, empty your heart of worry. Number three, remain vigilant against sin. Number four, repel Satan with relentless faith. Part of this is being alert, that's keeping your head up, being aware. First Peter 5 verse 8, but then verse 9 says, repel Satan with relentless faith. It says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This is so fascinating. Like, what's Satan repellent? You ever think about that? Like, we have bear repellent. We have bad guy repellent. We have all kinds of repellent. Bug repellent. Cockroach repellent. We all kinds of repellents. I need some Satan repellent. What's Satan repellent? Well, it's not guns and knives and bombs and poisons. It's a battle fought with faith. Satan attacks our faith. Remember what I said a minute ago. The lion's objective is to drain the blood out of its victim. Satan's objective is to drain the faith out of you. How do you resist him? Verse 9 says, be firm in your faith, a relentless faith. James 4, 7, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do I resist the devil? Submit to God. Strengthen my faith. Grow in my faith. Use his word. The thing that repulses Satan the quickest is scripture used in context. That's what Jesus did in the wilderness, remember? Satan comes to assault Christ, and Christ three times quotes scripture in its proper context. Satan also quotes scripture, but misquotes it out of its context. He doesn't fear that. He does that. What Satan fears is a Christian who's accurately armed with the sword of the Spirit and uses it. Puts God's word in your heart so that you will not sin against God. That's what fueled Paul and Silas as they're sitting in jail, singing. That's what fueled Peter himself as he went from being the impulsive, brash disciple to being the bold evangelist that he was. Paul would say this way in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You know, stand firm against Satan's schemes? Put on the full armor. He reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the full armor of God, so you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm. Satan can't assault you. I love how verse 9 ends. He says, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who in the world. He says, you're not alone. You know, misery loves company. That's a word we use. When you're having a terrible day and you call someone, they say, oh, I'm having a terrible day too. There's some little flicker of hope that happens when you know, hey, we're all having a terrible day. But on a much bigger level, what Peter is telling you is that the struggles that you're facing, the difficulties of life that we have that come with trying to be righteous in a fallen world, that come with trying to live for Christ in a home that's disrupted by sin? He says, God understands that. And he'll give you grace in that context. But you're not alone in that need for grace. In fact, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. These are normal temptations. These are normal challenges. These are normal trials. And God, who is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation gives the way of escape that we can endure. He'll give you grace to walk through it. He'll give you grace to walk through it. As Hebrews 11 reminds us of so many who by faith lived, and it says over and over again, by faith they lived. Hebrews 12 then says that we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's how we repel Satan, by a relentless faith that's anchored to Christ who constantly sets our eyes on him. And look at lastly, fifth, fifth, that we rest in his results. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says this, "After, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In the verses prior to this, Peter gave us four things that we are to do and how we trust his unfolding plan, how we resist the devil, how we stay alert, how we look forward to his results. And here in verses 10 and 11, he gives us four things that Christ is doing, four things that God himself is doing in us while we do our part. I love how the verse starts out. He says, after you suffered for a little while, he says, there's temporal seasons in life and things, times where the suffering subsides and there's a season of peace and a season of joy and excitement. And then another wave of difficulty comes sweeping across us. He says, after you've suffered, the God of all grace, the God who gives us what we do not deserve, who called you to, to his eternal glory in Christ, that's him reminding us that Christ calls us to salvation, he secures us there, he'll do these four things. He says he'll perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. To perfect is to put all the pieces in the right place. It's that you show up with a puzzle pieces of your life all messed up and you put them before christ and he puts it all into position so you can see the bigger picture everything is organized your character is organized your life is organized that he even in the midst of the trials will work deeply in your life to perfect you to put everything in its proper place to confirm is the word for stabilizing to make something impregnable to make something that nothing can penetrate that it's solid He says that's what your life will be, it's confirmed, it's set. That your hope is in Christ, your salvation is secure, nothing's going to shatter that, nothing's going to shake it. Then he says to strengthen you, and that's to galvanize you. That's to not only keep it anchored where the foundation is set and confirmed, but on top of that is a life built that's not swayed by false doctrine, not swayed by waves of temptation, not swayed by the challenges of life and the grief and the tragedies. And then last, he says establish, and this is fascinating because something that's established is a foundation or a solid fortress on which something else can be built. And what he's saying is you become part of the foundation for the next generation. You become part of what needs to be established so that those who will follow after you have something to build onto. For those in the room who have a godly heritage, where you have maybe a father or a mother who walked with Christ, or you have a spiritual mom or dad, people who, have, who you have looked to who have been those tightest two older men and women in your life who have breathed godliness into you, they become the established foundation on which you build your life. And that's how Christ builds his church. That's how subsequent generations of the church continue to advance because those who have gone before us are founded, anchored, established in Christ. And we look at their examples and we draw from their lives and we grow. That's what Peter has done. That's what Peter has done for us. Because we see how he grew up in Christ. And we see how he now is a leader of the church. And he looks back at the younger generations and he says, this is your part and this is what God will do. We've gotten to see the seasoned thoughts of a godly man who reminds us as verse 11 concludes, to Christ be dominion. That's rulership. That's authority. Forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word that you show us how not only we can be forgiven of sin, but how you then take a sinner saved by grace and deploy us back into the world to love others and to teach them about you. Father, thank you that your word presents to us the truth of your love for us, that we can pour out our hearts before you, we can cast our cares on you, we can bring to you a disorganized mess of our thoughts and put it on you and ask you for wisdom and grace, ask you for deliverance, ask you for compassion, ask you for the wisdom and discernment, and we know that you will hear those prayers and answer those prayers. And while we seek to resist the devil and yield to your unfolding plan, we ask, though, Lord, that you would constantly bring us the confidence that we need to walk in you. Thank you for your love for us that embraces us where we are, that you haven't made your compassion a condition of our daily yielding, but that it's there constantly for us, that we can call you Father. So we love you, Lord, and we praise you for it. In your name. Amen.